Hey everyone, it's Andrea Ferretti, and this is episode eight of Yoga Land. So you may have noticed already that I'm sounding a little squeaky this week. I acquired one of those preschooler colds, and if you have kids or if you work with kids, you know exactly what I'm talking about. When you get one of these colds, they're really hard to shake. I tried to tune in as much as I could to the sultry tone of the uh, of my vocal range this week, but there are definitely some squeaky moments. We're just going to have to roll with it. Today, my guest on the show is Alexandria Crow, and um, you've probably seen Alex, at least a sampling of Alex's amazing asana in the hardtail ads. She's been one of the main models for the hardtail ads over the years, and they're just gorgeous, gorgeous yoga advertisements. Alex has also appeared on the cover of Yoga Journal twice. She's appeared in videos for Yoga Journal and Oprah, and she's written for Women's Health Magazine, among other publications. So despite that impressive list of visual credentials, what's most interesting about Alex to me is that she really doesn't want to be known as a teacher of big, fancy, advanced yoga poses. Alex grew up a competitive gymnast, and she competed for many years in college. And so much of the yoga asana that's so challenging for us mere mortals was pretty accessible for Alex pretty quickly. And she did end up getting injured through yoga, and that taught her a lot. And we're going to talk about that in the interview, so we'll get into that more. But the outcome is that Alex really palpably feels that the gift of yoga isn't the doing of the fancy poses. It's what you're doing while you do any pose. And it's about learning about yourself, learning your limits, learning what works for you, and learning to trust yourself. So if you've been beating yourself up lately because you're not doing some yoga pose that you wish you could do, or if you ended up injured because you went against your intuition and listened to a teacher, or even if you're struggling as a teacher because you feel pressured to practice and photograph and teach fancy poses, I think you'll really appreciate this conversation with Alex. So you have this awesome post on your Facebook page showing a male gymnast. I'll put a link to it on, on our website so people can find it. He's doing a high bar routine. It's like this amazing routine. I'm going to actually read what you wrote as the caption. So you wrote this. This is the shit. The height of discipline and dedication. The pinnacle of ritualistic physical practice to get a result. This isn't yoga. It's gymnastics, but it's a dedication and determination far beyond what I did on a yoga mat doing Ashtanga. And I did that with grace, dedication, and devotion too. This is why I choose simple asanas, a simple practice of simple poses within a wise range of motion. Because from experience, I can tell you, if you want fancy, crow pose pressed into handstand ain't shit in comparison. The fancy asanas will never teach you what a gymnast knows, but the simple asana and the acceptance of human imperfections will teach you what us gymnasts don't. After 18 years of gymnastics, I can say that with solidity. I choose simple yoga. So that's really powerful. Yeah, I mean, it's the truth. You know, it's funny. I was doing an interview the other day and I was asked a question that I hadn't ever thought of before about kind of the current state of affairs and the complex and the fancy and also this kind of idea that everybody can do the same thing or that that's even the point or that the poses somehow are like the point just in their shape. 
And I was asked, do you think that there's something to the crazy, the really extreme? Is there something to doing that or learning that as an experience? And, you know, what I can say is that there, there is, I think that there is something to pushing the edge really far, but like once, you know, that's, that's the thing is that, you know, that practice really taught me like being a gymnast taught me fear and the edge and what my body was capable of. And, you know, you get hurt doing it. There's acute injuries and there's, you know, lasting injuries as well, or, or ones that are repetitive stress type things. But you really learn what it's like to fall on your head and hurt yourself really bad and um, get back up and try again and all that kind of stuff. So I do think that there's a place for that. And it was, it was something I learned early on, but with that, you know, the funny thing that's really different about what I did then and what I do now and what I learned is that that's a performance. And as much as I learned from it in terms of discipline and body control and body awareness, there's also a layer over top of that of perfection and of image that is masking pain, mm. fighting it because it makes it secondary to what you're doing and what it looks like you're doing. It's a performance at the end of the day. And we didn't necessarily, you know, the things we learned to endure as gymnasts were like hurt ankles and having to compete or, you know, wrists that wouldn't do what we needed to do, but we needed to compete. So we had like braces on them or whatever, but we never tried to cram ourselves into shapes that weren't meant for us. I was not a particularly like, funnily enough, upper body strong gymnast. I was a, I was actually like more flexible and kind of overall powerful, but not, not upper body strong. So vault was really hard for me. Impacting the vault with my arms was really hard. I had a hard, hard, hard time with that event. And there wasn't any like push to get me like they didn't send me like steroids and stuff and say you have to vault better you know or try to jam me into some kind of shape that would have hurt me because that wasn't my thing I was better at other events so that was the one that I just kind of you know did what was required and then I did better stuff on other events that spoke to my physicality a little bit better yoga doesn't really have that going on in the current state of things and I can't really talk much about lineage that would take like way too long but the current way that it seems is that everybody's supposed to like fit into one shape and that the poses are the point and that they should look this way. And the poses are the point stripped of like a lot of really what the point of doing them was. It, it's heartbreaking to watch people jam themselves into things or get so incredibly frustrated with not being able to get their hip joint to do something or their knee to do something. And I'm like, you'd literally like have to go to the store and get another knee and they, there's no knee store or Which hip store like they do at some point though. yeah and it's just that's heartbreaking because I'm like you know what I did that so you know I, that post what I'm saying is like there's a time and place for that but once you learn what injury is and the sensation associated with injury you don't really have to do it repetitively to get it like that's fine and you don't have to turn yourself into like a limp noodle in order to be a yogi like it's not the point either. So it was a hard road for me, like getting very, very hurt from misapplying my capabilities onto a very like one size fits all practice. So you feel like when you went from gymnastics to yoga, did you, you feel like you brought some of that into the yoga room, some of that, like working through pain or maybe not even noticing pain? Oh yeah. 
I mean, yeah, that was huge for me. I, I mean, you know, what's funny is I, my intuition told me, don't do this. My intuition said the thing you're being asked to do in the way you're being asked to do it isn't going to work. It was that, you know, quiet voice that was like, don't do that. That's stupid. Don't do, don't listen to them. Don't do it like that. But because there is this, you know, I have it up from my past. I have a coach athlete relationship where you do what you're told and you trust your coach, but your coach is ultimately like really interested in not hurting you because you're their athlete and you represent them. So not to say that teachers aren't like that, but you know, it's a different relationship in a way, but I was very used to doing being disciplined and being told to do something and, and doing it. And then I was good at hiding pain and not seeing it or not feeling it at all. And that those traits are then superimposed on top of a practice that's one size fits all. And so, of course, I can make it look like the picture. Of, of course, why wouldn't I? Like, of course. So, but I don't think that that's unique to me. I think that that's, you know, a lot of our Western culture that gets involved in this. So, well, the other thing that's interesting is when you talk about the question that you got about, you know, when is it okay to really push yourself and do wild things? When you're studying gymnastics under a coach, you're young. Your body is a lot more physically capable. You haven't been sitting at a desk 10 hours a day, five days a week. You know, you, you're, you're just much more mobile and you're much more resilient. So how do you, when you go into a yoga room these days and you, um, you know, and you see that intense effort that people are making and they're not necessarily aware that, um, you know, they might hurt themselves, like how do you help them back down? You know, one of the things that I found is incredibly helpful is kind of that same idea of oftentimes things are obscured from the public or the practitioner's view, the reason for things. Their reasoning is based on some sort of loose understanding or some sort of conception of what what they're supposed to be doing, but they don't really know the depths of why or if they should or anything like that. And I find that people tend to be very receptive for the most part when you say to them everybody's unique not there's not a person in this room that can healthily and safely do everything and yeah they're going to have to dance on the edge at times to figure out what it is that they can and cannot do but everybody is equal in that regard and you're going to hurt yourself doing this. And then I make jokes and I say, what do you think you're going to get from this? Cause that's one of my big things. I'm like, what do you actually think you're going to get from doing this? Because if you think you're going to get anything besides maybe some physical health or, or mobility or, or stability or anything like that, if you think you're going to get anything beyond that, you're mistaken because there's no, like money doesn't fall from the sky and you don't get like a better job or, you know, whatever it is that you're seeking, like enlightenment doesn't just spring on you because you learned to handstand. You don't get any of those things. What you might get is a really solid injury that you'll have to deal with. And I think explaining kind of the parameters around that is sometimes really, really, really helpful. And then being really compassionate with somebody because it's really disappointing to people when they find out sometimes that they can't do what they wanted to do or what they thought the point was. It's kind of this heartbreaking moment for them. But I think that that's such a tremendous place of opportunity where it's like, yeah, that pose wasn't working for you, but there are other ones or there's there's a place for you in this. It's different than everyone else, which will make you you know, your own unique being and stronger in your own way. And to learn that lesson is going to be so much more valuable. 
but again, you know, it's easy and hard all at once to kind of change somebody's viewpoint on something. But I think explaining why is so helpful with really concrete reasons. Yeah, not that not everybody is made the same. I mean, when you when you really just stop and say that, it's so obvious. Yeah. Right? That we wouldn't all fit into the exact same mold, but it is challenging like in a culture that's so focused on achievement and getting to the next thing. I think it is a really it's a hard fallacy that people are being fed. I think that that would be the biggest lesson for people these days to start to learn from an earlier point in their yoga um, practice is you're unique, you're different, your edge is different, and you should honor that in a huge way. Just like you don't have to drive the same car as the person next door and wear the same outfit. Like we're not dressed up like Star Trek people. Even Star Trek people had different colors, you know, they had. Yeah. So it's, it's be, be unique and be okay with it. But that's, that's hard in our day and age. Do you remember when you experienced that shift for yourself from the mindset of, you know, respond to the teacher the way you would respond to a, a coach and like put your 100% trust in them and work through pain to where you are now, where it's really much more of being inquisitive about yourself and trying to figure out what's right for you. Was it like an aha moment or was it sort of a gradual shift? Um, it was a, I can submit it these days into a series of aha moments. Because of that background and also just because of the way that I was taught and what I you know, thought the point was and all that. And I mean, you'll know this because we've known each other for a long time that I went into like the public arena of this fairly like early in my teaching career. So I was seen and photographed one way. And, you know, I was hired for stuff like that, even though that wasn't something that I was aiming towards ever or particularly interested in. Frankly, I don't really like being in front of the camera at all. It makes me really uncomfortable. But and I say that with like complete, genuine, yeah, that I don't like it. There's a reason my Instagram has no pictures. (laughs) I've been there with you. You're very low key. You're very, um, I mean, to say that you're modest makes it sound like you're like a prim school mark. Like you're, no, you're not I'm like swearing a, like a sailor. <laughs> you're not like a big flashy, you know, jazz hands kind of person. No. And so for me, like, but I, I did that, you know, I went in that direction and I, I'm not, I don't regret it. I think it was great. It was part of what happened and it's what I still do. I've made different choices around it these days, but I was seen that way and I looked a certain way and it really fit in to what was happening and what still is happening in the yoga world. You know, I could do all the poses. I looked a certain way and that was something that I, I didn't realize I had any attachment to until I'd lost it. So I, I hurt my back really bad and I, I could not walk and I couldn't move. And I was really it was, it was really devastating because I was very, very attached to that way of looking. It was different than I'd looked in my entire life. It had to do with, you know, getting divorced and losing a bunch of weight. And then all that was happening kind of over a course of years. And I hurt my back and I was one of the thoughts, I will not forget it because it was in retrospect, so funny was I'm going to get fat. I'm going to lose the ability to do these poses and I'm going to lose everything. And in my rational mind, I was like, that's stupid. I'm a really good teacher and I 
can figure this out and I can figure out how to practice other than this. But it was devastating because I'd lost everything. So it was that moment. And what's so funny was like, yeah, and it all happened. I did. I gained a whole bunch of weight. Like I couldn't do what I used to be able to, even though I would at times jam myself into shapes for certain photo shoots and stuff, um, which was, you know, what I was doing at the time. I thought I had to, I don't, and I didn't, but I did it and I would hurt myself each time. And, and then after that, I was like, well, you know, this this is how like the inside of my head vomits out my mouth sometimes. I was like, well, at least my face is still pretty. (laughs) At least there's nothing else about my face. I love how honest you are. That's so awesome because everyone's ego does this to themselves. Oh my God. No, because the the next part's the best. I was like, well, at least my face is still good. And like, there's always Photoshop. They can make me skinnier or whatever. (laughs) And like, this isn't even part of my teaching. I don't know why I'm so hung up on it, but it's so funny. And I was like, well, all right, this is my face. Then... (laughs) You don't ever like, as they say, like, don't tempt the universe because it'll come calling. I, I, the day of my birthday, I can't remember how many years ago it was at this point, but I went on a like bike ride to a hotel and we we're sitting there having lunch and, you know, a couple of drinks and whatever. And then I was riding my bike back and I almost got hit by a car. Ooh. It was Labor Day and there was just traffic everywhere and this guy didn't see me. And I swerved um, and I was on a really heavy beach cruiser and it was so fast. I literally like turned the steering wheel and before I even knew what happened, my face had slammed into the ground. Oh my gosh. And all I remember thinking was just not my teeth, not my teeth, please. And I don't want to have broken my nose, just not that, please. And I looked up and the woman that looked back down at me, I said, Oh my God, is it bad? And she had this horrified look on her face. And I was like, Oh my God. Oh no, 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 no. And, um, I ended up going to the emergency room and it wasn't that bad. Like I had, a, I, I put my teeth through my lip and I like cut there. And then I had, you know, two cuts on my forehead that I ended up, they were like, well, you need stitches or, you know, you can crazy glue it. And said, I wanted a plastic surgeon to look at it and blah, blah, blah. And they're like, no, 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 it's just, it's a, it's a narrow cut and it's straight. It's just going to tell you to crazy glue it shut. And so my ego said, oh my God, that's amazing. Yes. Crazy glue. No one will ever know. Meanwhile, I've got like two black eyes forming in the moment. And I was like, yes. And then they put the crazy glue on and she handed me the mirror so I could look at it. And they don't just crazy glue and slit it's like an ice skating rink of crazy glue oh my on my god. forehead. Like this huge ice skate. I'm like, Oh my God, I'm not going to be able to hide this. <laughs> There's no yeah. way. And my face is pretty like messed up. I just, I went home and laid in bed and just sobbed because I was like, I don't understand what's happened. I don't understand how I got here. And I was like, I have to go to work tomorrow. And I canceled my clients that next day, but when I woke up the next morning, I was like, you know what? I can't stop doing my job. Like, and I can't stop doing what I love and be afraid of people. They like, I'm fairly certain they like me for other reasons than my face. And so I went back to work. And what was funny is people kind of noticed because, you know, I put makeup over my eyes and stuff. So I didn't look like, you know, I'd just been in a like bar fight, but they didn't really notice. And if they did, they said, Oh, what happened to you? Okay. And that was it. And it went away and there was nothing more to it. But it was just one of those moments where I was like, Oh my God, none of this matters. This is so ridiculous. None of this matters. Like what I'm traveling around in and thinking is so important doesn't 
matter. And at that point, because I'd kept trying to push myself back towards the old practice, even at that point, days before I was going to push myself back towards Ashtanga. And at that point, I was like, no, I need to do what works for me. I need to do what's wise for me. And that I've tried it. And I've tried it so many times and I keep getting hurt. I need to go a different direction. And all the while I'd learned to like sit and meditate and all that kind of stuff. But at that point, I really started investigating like therapeutic ways of moving and healing some of the injuries I had for myself. But it was kind of this series of like having to have the entire external fall apart in a way. And, you know, not in a massive way, like I didn't almost die or anything, but I really had to have it fall apart in order to. I mean, you experienced like some of your greatest fears, you know, (laughs) coming coming to fruition. It doesn't matter if the fears are grounded in anything or not, you know, it's just actually going through that experience. So it's, it's, that's, I mean, that's great that you went through sort of the loss of the things you were afraid to lose and then realized that, ah, it doesn't matter. And you were free of those things. Yeah. Which is when I really started to take hold in how I, you know, I'd always been shifting the way I taught a little at a time, moving away from the traditional way I was taught and towards something that I thought worked better. I changed the way I sequenced. I was much more direct. And at that point, I started really looking at poses and how they functioned and whether they were even healthily composed, if you could even do them with any sort of wisdom and breaking them apart and making them a lot simpler and getting rid of some things that I just knew didn't work anymore. And bucking, basically bucking the entire system and saying, you know what, I'm going to try this a different way that I think will function better for the students I work with. And will get the point of what yoga and its philosophy is about across to them a little bit clearer. But it was like, it was learning to like really risk it. And I, I can never remember if it's just a Campbell quote, or if I'm just like totally bastardizing who it is and what he says. But I think it's Joseph Campbell and I believe it's that that you you will learn to continue to die because it's that letting go like over and over and over again without fear and just knowing what is right and doing it for yourself and sticking really close to your, your authentic truth. And, you know, those words have such an esoteric kind of like airy fairiness to them at times, but they're really grounded in what, what is right for you. Do it. Don't lie. Don't skirt around it. Stop trying to hide. Just do what is wise for you. Say what is wise for you. Be honest. And, you know, I think that was a big part of that transition. Yeah, that's huge. I mean, that's huge. And I think I think that's a huge thing to teach people. Similar to you, when I was starting to do yoga, I ended up very injured. And I was mostly an Ashtangi. And I just remember taking an Iyengar class from a very, very, very reputable Iyengar teacher And she swore that if I did bridge pose a certain way with a block, that I would heal my back. And guess what? After that, I couldn't really walk for a few months (laughs) comfortably. And that was the huge lesson of like, why did I trust this person who had never seen my body before, who had never met me before, just based on her credentials? You know, at the time when she told me to do it, it hurt. And I kept doing it. Oh, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I I know. It's- you know, I but I do I mean I do think I guess I think in certain ways like I mean this is like a whole different discussion but you know obviously injuries are great teachers and you know from time to time I I I don't know what your philosophy is and I'd like to ask you but I think it is inevitable to experience injury. It's just that I think what you're saying is 
if you can get to the place where you trust yourself, it's a lot less likely to happen. Yeah. I mean, here's the thing. Like people get so, when I start talking about this in person or wherever, oftentimes people get so afraid that then, you know, it's that idea of ahimsa and, you know, the way I look at the yanas is you can't hold so rigid to something that you're frozen. You can't be so worried about injury that you roll around the bubble. Like you can't do that. You have to participate. So, I mean, you don't have to, but even not participating is participating in a way. So you've got to do something. And I would suggest not being in a bubble because Mm -hmm. that doesn't sound fun, but you don't have to be so scared of that in that direction. There is a middle ground and it all comes from personal responsibility and personal trust. And I think that there, as a teacher, is a tremendous responsibility to teach. I think it is not something that should be taken lightly. I think it is not something that is easy and it's a skill set and then also requires continual self-evaluation. And one of the things is that I got really good at telling people what to do as a teacher. If you wanted to learn how to do something, I could get you to do it. No problem. I can give you all the intricacies of it. And then I could tell you if you couldn't do it like outright, if you just didn't have the structure to do it. I was always like, yeah, you're never going to be able to do that. Don't worry about it. We'll do something else. But there was a middle ground where I realized one day when I was looking at my classes, they moved, they were so meticulous and so thoughtful, you know, in a way. And they, it was like watching a well-orchestrated routine where they were really, really, really beautifully positioned. However, there was no uniqueness in any of it. It looked like a picture of a pose times however many people were in class. And they were so rigid in a way. I was like, this isn't working. They're too rigid. This, They look perfect, but they're in pain and I can feel it. And it was at that point that I was like, you know what? I can't be responsible for them. It's my, my job as a teacher is to give you parameters to say, there's this and there's that. And this might happen and that might happen. And then now you choose based on the information I've given you and how it makes the most sense to you. And then for me to watch out for like obvious mistakes that people are making and that kind of thing, but to really give the responsibility at a certain point back to the student and to say, I don't know what this is like in you. I can see what I think I see and I can feel what I think I feel about it. But I also don't know you from the inside out. And you have to do that dance. Otherwise, if you trust me blindly, like there's only so close you can sit to me and get everything there is to get from that connection. Eventually, you have to do it yourself completely because that becomes a hindrance. And I think that that's a very, very difficult thing as a teacher in the public setting in a group class these days, because really have to know how the body works. You really have to know about structural differences and mechanical differences. And then on top of that, like injury and lifetimes of stuff. And you also have to be willing to continue to to say, I don't know, or to change it and say, you know what, guys, like I I told you this, I didn't have all the information. We got to change it a little bit now. And to be, you know, it's humble in a way and say like, I didn't know enough. I made a little mistake. We're going to change some of it. I know more now, which is what doctors do. And, you know, other people in other professions do. I just wish that that would permeate the the yoga world a little bit more. I think that's great. I mean, I, I think that's like a decidedly anti-guru like stance. And I think it's, it's necessary at this point in our society and in the way that yoga is being taught. Yoga is not being taught one-on-one anymore for the most part. 
And um, we are just an incredibly democratic society. And there is some level of, I think we run into a lot of problems when we expect one person to solve everything for us. I think that the the way that yoga is taught these days with the with the group model in particular that doesn't lend itself to any sort of like long standing teacher student relationship or even continual or or frequent teacher student relationship you know that's one of the reasons i travel around and i'm now doing mentorship type stuff with people where it's much more frequent that i see the teachers that i've worked with because I feel such a disconnect happens where it's like, you get a little bit of me and then I'm gone. Or, you know, in a public vinyasa class or whatever type of public asana class, you see a student maybe once or twice or three times a week. At the, and that's like on a good on a good week. But sometimes it's like long time or they move around or they go to somebody else. And there's a lot of like misinformation and crossed over information, that kind of thing. And so how could I ever, without having an intimate, like one-on-one long-standing relationship with somebody, tell them in finality what was right for them? I, I can't. It's impossible. Even even if I had somebody, you know, it's kind of why I lean like much more towards like the Buddhist way of seeing things. And like Zen always makes me laugh because, you know, it's the, the student wants a lesson and the teacher just whacks them on the head with a stick and it's like, there you go. It's a lesson because it's about you figure it out. Like it's this, I can only show you so much. And then you've got to wake up yourself to, to what it is you're up to. So yeah, it's, it's definitely not, you know, the old way of doing it, but I'm really uncomfortable with that idea of like a guru anyway. Like I don't, I don't like that idea. I have so many questions. So, okay. I feel like I want to ask this from the perspective of a regular yoga student just going to class. And then from the perspective of a, of a, of a young teacher. So in this time of diverse yoga offerings, <laughs> that's like the most, I just came up with the most diplomatic way to say that. Yeah, exactly. I was like, how diplomatic of you. <laughs> you know, what would you recommend for a person who, you know, is really interested in the practice, doesn't have a lot of body awareness yet, doesn't, you know, really doesn't know the practice well, you know, would you recommend that they find one teacher and stay with that teacher and someone who that just feels intuitively right? Or would you recommend that they go to like several public class teachers until they feel like they know all kinds of, they've tried all kinds of different perspectives in their body? You know, it would probably be a combination of the two. What I would say is, I think that it's important to find a practice that resonates with you, especially when you're new. One that resonates with you from a certain comfort level. I think that it's going to be uncomfortable enough if you haven't done yoga to start and and don't have like a, that full body awareness or that's a newer concept to you. I think that, which is nothing wrong with that. There's like tons of people. I'm just an anomaly as an athlete like that. But I think that it's already confrontational and uncomfortable, which totally fulfills part of the philosophical teachings anyway, to just go to a yoga class as a new person. It's like, I even remember, what do I do? Like, do I wear my socks or do I not? What are those people doing with those? Like those, I just thought like blocks and straps. I don't understand this. I didn't, I was already, I felt like I was out of place. So I think that just that experience is enough And then learning these new shapes that you've never done before is uncomfortable enough. 
But I do think that there's something about it resonating with you. If you're a person that tends to like stuff that's, you know, a little hotter or whatever it is, or more slow and broken down and methodical, I think trying out a few different styles and few different teachers in that style is worthwhile so that you can find somebody that really resonates with you. And, you know, when I say resonates with you, I don't mean like the person you'd want to have coffee with or the person that you want to be like your new best friend or that they have a really amazing playlist or something like that. Not that they can't have those components, but I think that a teacher is somebody that is a person you think could teach you something you don't know and that you trust in a way kind of at least enough to begin with. And that makes sense to you because if they don't make any sense to you when they're talking and you're like, what are they talking about? That's probably not the teacher for you. So try a few different ones. And there's lots of, you know, different studios and different offerings. But then once you find somebody, I would say you practice with them for a long time Mm -hmm. until you get to a point where and not that you have to trust every word they say or do everything that they say, but it's a consistency because that's a that's a marker. You need some sort of consistency to see how things are going. If it's always different, you never have any idea of what progress you're making or the fluctuation between things. You have no idea. So I would say to try to eventually, once you've found somebody that makes sense to you, to be consistent with it for a long time. Mm-hmm. Cause I, I know that's part of my lineage is like my coach in Canada was my coach from the time. I mean, I had different team coaches that would come in and out, but they would still be with me for a few years at a time. My overwhelming teacher or my overwhelming coach the entire time is the same guy, Alex, same guy the entire time. So, and then when I moved to the States, my college coach was the same guy the whole time. So, you know, it's, I think that there's something to be said about being consistent. I also like what you said about you don't have to agree with every single thing they say, because again, you know, it speaks to not expecting your teacher to be this all knowing omniscient guide who, you know, is going to have every single thing perfectly correct. Like, obviously you don't want someone who's going to lead you down a dangerous path, but, but it allows room for that person to be human. So you're not projecting, you're not projecting this sense of, of them being your savior onto them. That's a really dangerous thing. And that's, that's kind of why I say that. And why I would say that in general is that idea of a a guru or the teacher as omniscient or anything like that. Teachers are just people all of them. I don't even care if they're awakened, they're still human. And just because you're awakened doesn't, people layer all sorts of like morality and religion and all kinds of things onto that type of statement. So they don't know everything. I can say only from my experience, I don't know everything. I've made mistakes. I continue to learn. It's a challenge to look back and realize how little I knew at a certain point and how much more I know now, but then to also know I know nothing still. And you know, I think that that's important for students to realize, like, just because somebody can do a pose or they, you know, can talk about the esoteric in some way, it doesn't mean that they have everything figured out. Right. They're there to guide you and they, they should know more than you in terms of like their depth of expertise. But yeah, it's not there. They don't have all the answers. Mm-hmm. It just strikes me as so interesting as we're talking that. So you, you grew up in this gymnastics background, which I imagine was pretty like regimented. And then you were also grew up in a 
Christian fundamentalist background, right? Which is yeah. also pretty authoritarian. And you, you're now, um, does it feel good to be taking this stance, this sort of anti, uh, like non-dogmatic, anti-authoritarian stance in your life? Yeah, I mean, in a way it does. It's so funny because, um, yeah, I did have like two really restrictive components to my my youth. And, you know, one resonated with me. I loved doing gymnastics. So that was so fun. You know, it was hard too. And I cried a lot, but it was fun. And then there was this other that I always hated. I hated it. It didn't make sense to me at all. And I just thought that I, I remember like faking it in church and being like, I don't know what everybody's doing, but like, I think you're supposed to do this. And hopefully I look like I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing. And I was like seven. And yeah. I think that's such a weird thing as a seven-year-old to be thinking. I think there should be more explanation around that. And my father is amazing with it. We've, we've really come to understand each other really well um, at this point in my life. But with my entire family, there was a huge period of time where like I was looked at as this kind of, oh, oh, we'll pray for her, you know, that kind of thing. And I just didn't understand. But what's so funny these days is... You know, at first it was kind of like rebellious because that is very much part of my personality is to rebel like that and to try new things. I'm not afraid to, to do really different stuff just to see what will happen. But it felt very rebellious and very good at a point. But then I would go to like Thanksgiving and they would the inevitable like religion, Jesus, God conversation would come up. And I'd be like, I just don't I don't believe in that. And they'd tell me I was going to hell. And, you know, as as much as I knew what I was doing was the right thing for me, that was still like really heartbreaking to hear your family think that of you. And it wasn't until really, really recently that I started, because I've studied the, the philosophical components of this so much. That's actually my main interest is that. And that's really what drives me. Everything I do is based on philosophical understanding and how that relates to how I'm teaching and it wasn't until really recently when I started to dive into this idea of surrender and of God in a different way that I understood where my family, in particular, my sister actually was coming from. And I'd always loved yoga and Buddhism because you were responsible for the most part for yourself. You had to take control and you were responsible for your own awakening. But what I have realized over the last while is that there is a, in both of them, a surrender to what is and a surrender to you being one individual and your human mind not being able to figure it all out. You cannot, you know, manipulate the system and put everything in boxes and configure everything so perfectly that nothing ever goes wrong. It's not even possible. And when I started to look at that idea of like surrender and letting go and allowing what is to be what it is, it was kind of during that whole like health face on the ground stuff when I was like, you know what? I don't, I keep trying to puppeteer this in a certain way and I can't and I have to let go. So it was actually a funny thing because I had been very into being this anti-establishment, like counterculture person in my family. And now what I realize is that the essence of what I believe and the essence of what they believe, whether they understand that completely or not, it's exactly the same. Like there's so much of it that is the same. And then I look at like the state of yoga these days and even the state of yoga across all the periods of time, 
it's the same thing. Like it's a very simple thing. And then we humans make it a big mess and then we simplify it and strip it back down. And then we make it a big mess again. You know, we just, that's our favorite thing to do. So yeah, it's, it is funny like that, that now I'm just at this point where I'm like, no, it's cool. Like, yeah, I never was mad at you for your religion thing. And I totally see what you were, what you were getting to. I'm not going to do the whole read the book thing with you, but it's cool. Like (laughs) we're saying the same thing in a lot of ways. mentioned that the the philosophical underpinnings are really important to you and you try to get them across in your teaching. So what would you, if you could, what would you say is the most important thing that you hope for people to take away from your teaching? If I'm teaching yoga asana these days, you know, when I'm lecturing, it's a different thing. But when I'm teaching yoga asana classes, what I look at that as is, okay, what was, what's asana? what is it composed of? What are its qualities? And for me, you know, I mean, if I go all the way back before it was postures of any sort of, you know, complexity, whether you want to do that, this Krishnamacharya age, or you want to go way back to Tantra, like it, it depends, but it doesn't really matter. I would say, okay, well, the sutras, and when we're talking about the word asana, it's posture seat, and it's a place to sit and watch to watch fluctuations arise and fall, to watch impermanence, to watch duality, to see the effort and the ease, the comfort and the stability, the, you know, whatever the fluctuation is, pleasure, pain, rise and fall, and the reaction to those dualities because of your preference, whether you cling to them or you repel them, whether you perpetuate them or ignore them. Once you learn to just watch that, oh shit, it's all impermanent and I try to make it permanent, once you learn that in asana, then that's kind of like all there is to learn in that. And so then I would take it to the step of meditation, which is why I do meditation in all my classes these days, beginning and end. And what I'm trying to get across to people constantly is to get them to a steady place, a focused place, and not as a place of ignoring what is, but to get them to a steady place where they can watch what comes and goes, what they're doing. And reflect on why they're doing it to make choices based on their own individuality and watch their mind get involved by accident um, out of the moment, you know, picking a posture and saying, I'm going to do it like this because the person next to me is doing it like this, even though I have a very strong suspicion this is hurting me in some way. My whole idea is to get you to a place where you can watch that. And then also just to see that like the shape of the pose doesn't really matter, that pose itself doesn't really matter. It's, and that it's that whole esoteric statement of it's what you do in the pose that matters. Well, what you do in the pose is get steady and watch and watch and watch. And I always say like the very simple exercise that I do a lot of these days, even in workshops when I'm teaching philosophy is we just sit still and I give them an option to sit however they want and to have a lot of props near them. And I just make them sit there for a minute they choose a seat 
I make him sit there for like another minute and I'm kind of talking. And then I say, pick, decide, like, can you sustain this? Is this going to be sustainable or are you really uncomfortable? And I give them the option of propping themselves or changing the shape at that point. And then I have them reflect on why they chose the shape that they did. Is it because it's fancy or that's how you sit in yoga or it was the the choice that they knew was the most sustainable? Like, where did that come from? And can you even find a reason? And then I say, okay, well, if, at this point, if it's uncomfortable, then choose something else. Like, okay, pick another seat, prop yourself up higher. And then I have them close their eyes because at that point, they're all looking at each other, judging who's going to get up and get a prop, who's going to, you know. And so then their eyes are closed and I kind of go through the same process. And then I tell them they've got like 10 seconds to really make sure. And then I won't, I say, you can't, now they can do whatever they want, but I say, don't move now be still. And I make them sit there with no focal point or anything, just still in the shape that they chose arms down, just sitting. And I make them sit and sit and sit and sit. And then eventually we go to a focal point. Okay. Pay attention to this, your breath as a steady point. And so, you know, then I'm talking about what do you, what's ha- like, you're wondering what we're doing or, you know, I'm giving suggestions. I'm not telling them what they're doing. I'm just saying, this is probably the conversation in your head, something like this. And then I make them put their arms over their head. And when they put their arms over their head, I, it's the perfect opportunity to say what you thought was uncomfortable a moment ago, what you were doing, whatever you were doing with in your mind while trying to watch your breath a moment ago and, and thinking that was hard. How long is this going to last? Now this became infinitely harder. Now this is more uncomfortable. And what happens in that moment? What are you doing with that? more discomfort. Like when's this going to end? Oh my God, what comes next? Like all this conversation and you're just arms overhead. And I'm like, and the mind does, I'm going to die. I'm going to die from arms overhead. And I'm like, nobody's ever died from arms overhead. (laughs) And then they put their arms back down after a pretty solid period of time. And what was really uncomfortable before they put their arms up becomes blissful. Hmm. And that's pleasure and pain and effort and ease. And I'm like, yeah, remember two sides, you know, 10 minutes ago or five minutes ago, this was really uncomfortable. And now it's really comfortable, but watch. And I make them sit there more and it becomes uncomfortable again. And that's just the thing. And to me, that's all I have to do to teach asana. So then the rest of class is that same idea happening over and over and over again, just to show people how they fidget away from the sensation that rises and falls. Yeah. Being present is not easy. No. (laughs) (laughs) That's why we have a whole system, like system and practice around it. Exactly. I wish that it was more obvious to people that that was what Austin's for, though, is to be present and to watch that sensations come into this, you know, being this avatar thing that we're our essence is wandering around in. And the sensations are we're programmed to protect ourselves, we're programmed not to die. And everything is death to us. Everything. Because there's sensation associated with everything, with you know, a situation, with weather, with I don't care what it is, it has this physical sensation, which then is going to turn into thought, which you know, and emotion, and then that's action. But it happens so fast. The sensation comes in. You don't even see the rest. And then the choice. You're like a little uncomfortable and you run or you're a little uncomfortable and you fight. And we don't even see it. And I wish that that was more obvious to people that that's what we're trying to do with these poses. It goes back to the koshas and 
It's like we've all developed this. The outer kosha is just so tough and impenetrable yeah. right now. You know, it's just like if it was like represented in our energetic body physically, it would be like linebackers or something. Totally. Yeah. <laughs> like yeah. The, it's like if you watch the Game of Thrones, it's like our outer shell is like the mountain. <laughs> I don't watch that, actually. I really feel like I've just lost. I'm so... uh I don't know, just missed a whole segment of popular culture by not watching that show. It, you know what? To be totally honest, I got roped into watching it the first two seasons and ha- uh, three and hated it. But then it was like, and every year I'd bitch and moan about having to watch it. But I'd invested so much in trying to understand it because that is not my genre. And, that, and now I still watch it. But there's a guy in it that's just like this huge, huge guy, obviously called The Mountain. And he's like this crazy fighter who could anyone. And I'm like, yeah, that's your outer layer. It's like, we're not changing. We're not budging. It's good like this. Yeah. So switching gears a little bit. So you have some strong feelings about the current state of teacher training. And it seems like if I think about it, I think you have kind of two, two beefs. One would be the quality of the training that's of many of the trainings that are available. And then the second part being the fact that a 200-hour training is really not enough to prepare people for teaching, you know, on a regular basis. So I'm just wondering if you can talk a little bit about what you see happening in terms of quality and how can we help people who want to take a teacher training select one? Yeah, I mean, it's so, it's so different, as you know, um, out there comparatively to when, you know, I went through teacher training and to, you know, when, when you did, and it's just so different now. And there's so many trainings taught by so many people. And, you know, whenever I talk about something like this, I always preface, preface any of this with this statement, everybody's doing the best that they can at any given time. And they have reasons for why they're doing what they're doing. So just because I have an observation or criticism in a way about things, it's not that I'm judging those people and saying they're bad or that they, I think that they're evil or, you know, they're intentionally making mistakes. For the most part, people are always doing the best they can. And sometimes, yeah, in the current state, teacher training is a lucrative thing and it is necessary for a lot of people to keep the doors open. So, you know, that's a whole reason in and of itself. Right. But I think that the public should really know what they're signing up for and what they're going to get. I wish that it was more understood that there's not a governing body at all, really, that oversees this. And, you know, it, there is one, but what it really functions as more is like a registry. It's not something where, there's eyes on us like a state board or anything like that for what trainings are registered. So I think that it's just important for the public to understand that just to start with, and then to ask a lot of questions about who's teaching you, where were they taught? What's their lineage? What do they believe? Back when I did it, it was earlier on in yoga works way of doing things. And, um, I knew that I'd had, you know, I knew Catherine and I knew a ton of friends who'd gone through that program and they all had great things to say about it. And they actually recommended it to me. And that was where I was practicing. So it made made sense. But I didn't know James and it just happened that my teacher ended up resonating with me so well. 
I knew what I was getting and, and I called them and I interviewed them and I asked a lot of questions and I, I was very inquisitive and I wasn't interested in becoming a teacher, but I'm very skeptical by nature and I wanted to know what I was buying for all that money. Right. It's a lot of money. It's a lot of money. And, you know, I also had no aspirations of teaching. So I was just, I mean, I did and didn't, and it, it didn't pan out the way I would have ever thought. It was like, maybe I'll teach a little bit so that like, I don't die in the fashion world. So now it's, it just, you know, oftentimes these days, I think what's ended up happening is that it's very popular to be a yoga teacher these days. And I understand why I'm not criticizing that. I just, I understand why. And I think that a lot of newer practitioners are interested and intrigued by that vibe and the possibilities and they love the practice and all of those things go into it but they're very new and they go right into teacher training from there. And I think that not knowing a lot, not having practiced for a lot of years and going right into that, you might not do as much research because it's like, you know, your community of people in your studio and you just go and you're like, yeah, I'm going to do it. So I think that that is a difficult, a difficult thing in and of itself. And then not asking enough questions before you go in because you're so charged. You know, it seems people are so charged up to take teacher trainings and so excited about it for whatever reason. And there's not enough questioning about, okay, what exactly are we going to learn? What is the curriculum? What can I expect? Who is teaching it? How long have they been teaching? Who was their teacher? What is their practice? What do they teach? Like, like, you know, all those things, taking their class a decent amount of times. I think you really have to do your research in that. So that's, you know, one, one portion of it is, is just going in and doing that kind of research for yourself. And then, you know, I mean, it's just turned into such a, a big thing at this point and 200 hours seems, you know, I was telling, I was telling actually somebody, um, the other day, this is my, my analogy, um, and, and my boyfriend and I kind of, this is the one we, we play around with because it's funny, is that you would never as, and I do it from student all the way through teacher. So you would never as a, somebody who's interested in karate, go to a karate dojo and walk in and say, I'm going to take the black belt class. And the, they would be like, well, have you done karate before? And you're like, no, I, I just, I'm physical. I can do it. And they're like, you have to do all the other belts first. And you're like, no, I mean, I'm fine. I'm take the black belt. And then you like go in there and get kicked in the face and like, it wouldn't, it wouldn't work. They make you start at the beginning and yoga is kind of this funny thing where you can just walk in and take a two, three class because you have a physical, you know, there's understanding of some sort of you were a dancer or an athlete in the past. So there's that. And then there's the, you know, teacher one where it's like, what else out there that is pretty intricate and, and in depth and requires a tremendous amount of physical and also philosophical knowledge and all that and teaching skill and, and all those things that go into being a good teacher. What else out there could you go and take a 200 hour course for? And then they just turn you loose. Like where would they go to medical school to like be a cardiologist? And they're like 200 hours, it's totally fine. We're just, we're going to learn some stuff. And then you're going to go out there and just do some cardiac surgery and with no mentor and you're not an intern or anything, just go out. Right. And you did the, and you did the 200 hours in a month or something. Yeah, like yeah exactly. Or like two weekends. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
And I'm just like, you can't, you can't expect it to be that. Now, I don't, I don't think there's anything wrong with it. And again, like I taught a lot of those for years and I don't regret doing it. But what I will say is that for me, I went from one 200 hour to another, to another, to another. And I assisted my mentor for like years and sat with him and he watched me. And it was this very old school teacher student relationship. Whereas nowadays those things don't happen very much. And because you're paying so much money, it tends to be that, you know, you go through the training and then you want to recoup the money right away. And I understand that, but at the same time, you know, I think that there's a really, really heartbreaking thing happening with memorizing a sequence and memorizing some cues and those sorts of things so that you can go out and, and lead people right away which doesn't have a depth to it that, that I would love people to have because there's so much more than that. And that will only last so long. And, you know, I just think that there's a a conversation that needs to be had about the fact that once you get out, there's plenty you could do in a simpler way. Like you teach your friends and family, teach at, you know, beginners that, you know, teach there's, there's going and being the popular hot, level two, three or whatever it is, class teacher right away is going to be a disservice to you as a teacher as well as the students. So, but that's a hard thing to say to somebody who's just spent all that money on a, on a training. Right. It's also a kind thing to say in a way, because if, if you throw yourself into a situation that you're not ready for, you know, you might not feel like you're doing a, a, a great job. So if you, you know, to say to people that, you know, you, you, probably need more support than just 200 hours is I think in a way it's it's kind (laughs) you know it's like it's not you it's just that it's a really complex job and it takes time to to get your feet under you yeah and I think it really you know to me having done this for as long as I have and and understanding like how much I've learned and how much I have to continue to learn is something where I almost find like the 200 hour the fact that it's called that a little bit sad at this point, because it implies that it's this very kind of like go and do 200 hours and you can just go and, you know, be a a great teacher and whatever it comes from that. And I think that that for those of us who've been doing this for a long time, that's almost like this heartbreaking statement because it's not easy and it's not something that anybody can do and it requires great skill and it, it takes a tremendous amount of responsibility to do it well. And I think that that's, you know, something I wish people understood more and that they would go and find a teacher to work with after and to continue with, which is why I, you know, I do what I do these days because for me, it's really important to go and re-educate and continue to educate the people that I've already worked with and the new ones that, you know, come my way who've either, you know, don't do a 200 hour or have been through one and need more help. Because how do you ever become a really great version of yourself as a teacher and not a mimic if you only get to that depth that you get in a 200 hour? That's why cues are like broken telephone of cues for like, 10 years, somebody saying such and such about the shoulder and not inquiring. Well, of course, if you don't have that support after, how would you ever figure out more than that? And I think that that's something that is really important for people to understand is you've got to keep going and keep learning and keep being supported. Do you do one-on-one mentoring right now? 
Um, I'm trying to do, well, that would be something I have to do online. Most likely I do mini mentor sessions of the max is 15 people. That's actually what I'm here in Kansas doing right now is a four day immersion, um, mentorship program. And uh, most of the people have either done workshops with me or teacher training with me in the past. And then I have a whole system kind of being set up right now of Facebook groups and forums. And there's a private one and a public one to support people ongoing with conversation like this. And then in, in the future, hopefully some Skype session group stuff um, that we're, we're working on. So if people wanted to find out more, where would they go? They can go to my website. That's one, which is yogaphysics.com. Um, or they can go to the yoga physics forum, which forum is spelled with a PH because um, that's the community group where I'm just, we're trying to spur conversation and talk about things and also provide a place for people to ask questions and engage and learn more about what people who are trying to further their education and trying to be different and individual, their own way of teaching, their own way of speaking, where, where we're talking about that and supporting that so that it doesn't feel like you have to do what is out there, that you can really do what aligns well with you, your personality, your style of practice and teaching, and with the philosophy of, of yoga and with what you you know and have chosen to use as your mode to teach. I just have one more really important personal question for you. You got it. This is just really because I want to know because I respect this side of you. When we worked together, I think it was like five years ago, uh-huh. I remember that you love really raw comedy. Yes. And I do too. <laughs> so I am wondering who is your favorite right now? Who are you watching? Right now, um, so Jim Jeffries is actually like, I, I mean, you know, John, and he actually introduced me to Jim Jeffries, but I, I really think he's hysterical. And you can talk about raw, like he's pretty, pretty raw. I really love him. I, I really love Bill Burr. I, I love them. You don't? No. <laughs> oh my God. See, this is why I look. asked the question. Oh my God. Okay. Bill Burr and any of them. And then Jim Jeffries and literally any of them, they're, all their stand-up specials are so funny. All right. Um, but they're really crass and really like, they're my personality. So I have no problem with edgy, like, you know, I'll say anything. I mean, if you listen to this, that's like, you know. <laughs> yeah, I, I kind of like it to be really outrageous too. It's just like, Things that shock me, I usually think are really hysterical. The person who I am really following right now is Maria Bamford. Have oh, we don't her? her. So she's awesome because she she's just incredibly open about having suffered from mental illness. Uh-huh. And she talks about it in the most hysterical way. And, you know, like things that sound so tragic are are so funny. She's got a new Netflix series called Lady Dynamite, which is kind of wacky and it's taking me a little while to get used to it, but I'll have to look at that. She's just incredibly talented and and um like really unique. Just really, really, really unique. I'll have to look that up. I love Amy Schumer too. I think she's really funny. She's yeah. like the one of one of the only female comics that does stand up that I'm like, yeah, I'm totally into that. And then she's not a comedian per se, but 
because you said that about the mental illness thing, Lena Dunham cracks me up. That yeah. book she wrote, oh my God, when she's talking about like her mental illness and stuff, I just, I was like, I understand a lot of this is just funny and terrifying all at once. Yeah. But I really, I really like her. And then honestly, uh, I don't know that he's a stand up. I, I don't, I mean, he might be. Although I don't think so. But do you watch um, last week's night with John Oliver? I haven't watched it in a while. Oh my God. He's so good. His timing is so funny and so spot on. And everything he says is so like vastly inappropriate. And I just, I love it. It's the only way I can like watch the news. (laughs) Oh yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. Well, thanks so much. Yeah, you're welcome. Have a good night, Andrew. Thanks. You too. Hey everyone. Thanks as always for listening. Every time I finish a conversation with Alex, I always find myself re-examining my routine actions and wondering how often I'm I'm just doing something out of habit instead of listening to myself and being true to myself. So I hope that this uh, conversation inspired you. You can find out more about Alex at yogaphysics.com, which is her website. She's got a blog on there and a lot of great things to read. You can find show notes for this episode at yogalandpodcast.com slash episode eight. Please follow me on Twitter at yogalandpodcast. You'll find out when new episodes go up and I'll share other great things on there as well. And if you enjoyed this episode, if you're enjoying the podcast, you can leave me a review on iTunes and more people will find it. As always, thanks for listening. I'll talk to you soon, hopefully without the squeaky voice.